0: Good morning. Good morning. It's going to be a good day And the Lord. We'll be seeing His power and saving together. Amen. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Ben King, the pastor of, uh, of the Fellowship of Williamstown, and it's really, really good to be here with you. Uh, if you have your copy of the scriptures, you can turn to Nehemiah chapter 9. I'm assuming you guys are pretty familiar with where Nehemiah is at this point. Been in the series for a little bit, but if you're not, you can just sort of open up halfway to your Bible, hit the Psalms, and go backwards a little bit, Job, Esther, and then you'll hit Nehemiah. We're in chapter 9. I'm going to read for us the whole chapter. Let pray. Listen to God's Word. Now, on the 24th day of this month, The people people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it they made confession and worshipped the Lord their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, Benai, Cadmiel, Shebaniah, Benai, Sherebiah, Benai, and Chennai, and they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Benai, Hashbaniah, Sherebiah, Hadiah, Shebaniah, and Pepehiah said, Stand up. And bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts. The earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. And you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abraham and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt, And heard their cry at the Red Sea, and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh, and all his servants, and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers. And you made a name for yourself, as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them, so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land, and you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day, and by a pillar of fire in the night, to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments, and you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them and out of the rock For their thirst, and you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive Gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, This is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies, you in your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sion, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. And you multiplied their children as the stars of heaven. And you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land. And you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hands with their kings and the peoples of the land, that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land and took possession of houses full of all good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Nevertheless, they were disobedient And rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back. And killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Therefore you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their sufferings they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you. And you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they returned and cried to you, you heard from heaven. And many times you delivered them according to your mercies. And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder And stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets. Yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them. For you are a gracious and merciful God. Now therefore our God, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. Let not all the hardships seem little to you that has come upon us. Upon our kings, upon our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers. And all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us. For you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. Our kings... Our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them. Even in their own kingdom and amid your great goodness that you gave them and in the the large and rich land that you have set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day. In the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts, Behold, we are slaves, and its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the name of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Lord, your word is life, and truth, and bread. It is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And I pray now that you would convict us by your word, that you would bring a sense of the weight of our sin through the preaching of your word, and remind us again of your faithfulness, of your covenant love to us in Christ Jesus, who has borne our judgment, who has taken upon himself all the curses and all the weight of the judgment for our sin in our place. Lord, would you nourish your people today by your spirit through the proclamation of your word, I pray for Jason this morning, that you would give him boldness and clarity and freedom this morning your word in truth and with great joy. (coughs) Lord, thank you for your word. Bless the preaching of your word now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In 2 Samuel
1: 12, uh, you're, a story that many of you are probably familiar with. The Lord sends the, the prophet Nathan to go before King David, and he tells David this story. There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought up this ewe lamb, and it grew up with him and with his children. He used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. He was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to for him, for him. But he took, what did he take? He took the poor man's, One lamb that he had that was like a member of his family. And he takes this lamb, this rich man does, and he has this lamb slaughtered and prepared for his guests. When King David heard this story, he was angry. As the king, he had the power to right this wrong. And David said, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this thing deserves to die and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he has done this thing and because he had no pity. David's basically saying, bring this man to me, and I'm going to kill him. I'm going to have him killed. As many of you know, at this point, the story turns when Nathan says to David, what? You are the man. You're the man, David. You're the man. David, who was abundantly blessed by the Lord and could have had whatever he wanted, took the wife of Uriah the Hittite for himself. Then had Uriah murdered to cover up his sin. And when Nathan's rebuke came, when Nathan said, You are the man, David confessed, I have sinned against the Lord. The word of the Lord has power to pierce a heart. What does real conviction, confession, and repentance look like? In today's passage, we see the people of Israel coming face to face with their sin. God had been so good to them. He had brought them back. He had given them Nehemiah to lead a building project. He had protected them from enemies all around. He had protected them from internal strife. He had strengthened them to complete the wall. He had repopulated Jerusalem. He had united them in worship under the law. He had reminded them of the joy of the Lord that was to be their strength in the midst of their conviction and called them to festive rejoicing and celebration as they renewed the Feast of the Booths. The feast had begun on the 15th day of the month as it was prescribed in Leviticus chapter 23. And it lasted seven days. So today's passage picks up two days after the completion of the Feast of Booths, the times of rejoicing, the solemn assembly. Here we are, two days later, and the people of Israel were taking the law and their sin seriously, at least temporarily. This morning, I want us to look at the people's worship, confession, and resolution, Worship, confession, resolution. That's, that's what we're going to go with this morning. Point two is going to be the main point because it's the main point of this chapter. Worship, confession, resolution. What does proper confession look like for a people who are pierced by the word of God? So in chapter eight we saw that Ezra read from the law from early morning until midday. While all the people stood under it and listened. Here in chapter 9, again, the people gather for worship. And it it says, they gather, first of all, in humility. Right? They gather with fasting and in sackcloth, with earth on their heads. These are symbols of, of mourning, sadness. They came humbly. It does seem, I mean, anybody can dress poorly, throw some dirt on their heads. And stop eating, but it does seem that they came genuinely heartbroken as they had heard the law and all well, the conviction of the law had come upon them. They seemed to want to do the thing, do things the right way. It says here that they separated themselves from the foreigners at this point. Uh, I want to be really clear. A couple things. Uh, Ezra had told them about this. 13 years ago. They had already come under conviction for their intermarriages with Barnes. With and apparently 13 years later, we're back in the same position. And guess what? Not to spoil chapter 13 of Nehemiah, but in a couple years, they're going to be back in the same position. But I want to make really clear, I've said this in Pittman, I'm, I don't know if Ben has said this yet in this series, but I want to reiterate that the issue here is not that people are not allowed to marry people of other ethnicities. The issue here is that people should not be intermarrying with worshipers of foreign gods. That's the issue at hand. That's what we are working through here. And again, they had done it. Thirteen years ago, they were convicted. They're not convicted anymore. Now they're convicted again. And so they are separating themselves. And much like in chapter 8, the Levites are there. Ben did a great job pronouncing all their names exactly right when he read that. They're there to help the people understand what the law says. It's good to have teachers. It's good to have people explain to us what the word says when it is difficult to understand or apply it to our hearts and our lives. So we're going to assume this morning that Ezra is the reader here. A quarter of the day... Which is how long? Six hours hours is is our quarter of the day, but in this it would be three hours. They would have thought of their daytime as a 12-hour period. So for a quarter of the day, three hours, they read from the book of the law. And amen is right. And then for another quarter of the day, they made confession and worship. That's six hours. A few notes on that, okay? This would be a great time to say, remind me that we started this service a little bit late, so you start looking at your watches. Just just be mindful of today's past. But more importantly, good, good things happen when the people of God give priority to worship. Right? Good things happen when worship is a priority. And we could. We could get into a discussion about how long services should be or how dedicated we are to the rest of our Sunday schedule, above and beyond the gathering for worship. They're worthwhile discussions and things you should think about and analyze in your own life. But here, please note that it produced a great good in the people when they sat under the teaching of the Word of God. It produced... Good For the believer in Christ, life is better when we are regularly sitting under the Word. Not better like everything in your life goes great, but better as if we're reminded of what is true. Our eyes are directed away from ourself and our situation, and they are cast upon the One who is worthy of all praise and honor. The one who is worthy of all worship. Our souls are challenged. It's good for our souls to be challenged. We are convicted. We are reminded, right, as we are convicted, that we have great hope in Jesus Christ. We are strengthened in our walk by the power of the Holy Spirit. When we do not make worship a priority in our lives, we deprive ourselves of spiritual sustenance. Second, as it goes with worship, note that confession and worship go hand in hand. Verse 3 says, right? They made confession and worship. The second half, the last three hours. We're going to get back to this in a couple minutes, but I wanted to make it clear. There's a reason... Why I believe, I know, both Pittman and sound, we do make a time of confession a part of our worship service, because the Word does all kinds of things in us when it hits us. And it often, by the power of the Holy Spirit, brings us to a point of conviction first. And then we are encouraged. And then finally, under the, the heading of worship, note that the leaders lead the people in worship. Right? We've talked throughout this series that the leaders led in repentance. They led in generosity. They led in courage. And here they lead in worship. In verse 5, they say, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is above all blessing and praise. A good worship leader, whether it's a church elder or a preacher or a song leader or a reader, a good leader, A good worship leader directs the gaze of the people away from self and toward God, lifts our eyes to the Lord. And this people, after they had celebrated the rebuilding of the wall, they had read the wall, they, they stood under the conviction of the word of God. What comes to your mind when you hear the word confession? What comes to your mind when you hear the word confession? We're moving into point two. Some of you may think uh, that part of the order of worship. Like, okay, we do that during our worship service. We have a time of confession. Some of you, maybe with Catholic backgrounds, have memories of, of sharing your sins with a priest who was behind a curtain or, or a screen. And the priest gave you the prescription, you know, the acts of penance that you had to do to be forgiven for your sins or or at least temporarily forgiven for your sins. Some of you, when I say the word confession, maybe you you have in your minds like this idea of morbid introspection. Like, I just got to keep looking inside of myself for what's wrong. And I want to tell you, what I see here, what I see modeled here is not some obsessive self-evaluation. It is not self-pity. It is not self-focus. The confession of the people of Israel is the response of a people who have turned their focus away from themselves and toward God. Toward a holy God. For the spirit-filled believer in Christ, confession is not Okay, when we think of times that you're you confessing sin in your life, you don't just sit around and think like, i gotta, I got to come up with this list of things I did wrong this week. Guess what? First of all, your list, you, you don't even know how long your list is. You don't know what's within. You don't know how far short you've fallen of love God with all your heart. But what happens when the spirit-filled believer is confronted by the truth of God or confronted by the kindness of God in your life? How many times in our lives has the Lord done something to bless us and we've said, Who am I? After the life I've lived, after the way that I spoke, after the whatever it is, that He would be good to me. When I'm reading the Word of God and I say, Oh, I long to be like that, and yet I see how far short I fall. I am brought to confession, not when I self-evaluate, but when I let the word of God evaluate me. Right? Think about and I thought of something that, that made sense to me. Like I was thinking about it. Because I think a lot of us have this idea of confession where it's like, all right, I, I'm supposed to come up with my list of the things I've done wrong so I can say them to God. And I thought about Isaiah's encounter with God in Isaiah chapter 6, right? His encounter didn't start with like some introspection. He looked at God and he said, what? Woe is me. I'm ruined. From a man of unclean lips. And I dwell among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the Lord. That's that's a picture of what the Lord does to us through the ministry of the word, a part of what he does to us through the ministry of the word. And Ezra here uses Israel's own history as the backdrop for the, the confession. Israel had a long history of receiving the provision of God, of being the chosen people of God, of hearing the words of God, and then turning from God. Did you notice in, the, in verse 2 that the Israelites confessed their sins and what else? They confessed their sins and, verse 2 is inside of your Bible, they confessed their sins and what else? The iniquities of their fathers. Now this isn't the main point here, but I think it's worth addressing Do we need to confess the sins of our ancestors? I'm going to say a few things about that. Very briefly. First, we cannot do any repentance on behalf of ancestors that accomplishes anything for them. It doesn't get them merit merit when we repent on their behalf. Second, The people of Israel are confessing in this way to ultimately say, and we're just like our forefathers. We're doing the same thing. We acted the same exact way they did. Third, I think we need to remember that the modern day parallel for Jerusalem and Israel is what? The church. It's not modern Jerusalem, it's not modern Israel, and it's not America. It's the church. That's important for us to remember. So with that in mind, I would say there are scenarios where the church needs to confess and repent of its forefathers' sins. I'll I'll give you a couple examples. In America and around the world, churches in the past and maybe even some presently have supported enslaving people or keeping people out because of their ethnicity, because of what they look like, it would be right and good for a generation following them to repent of the deeds of their forefathers. There are many local churches that need to repent of their wholehearted embrace of pride, and every new cultural celebration of sin. If these churches refuse to turn from this wickedness, but the generation that follows them says, what have we done? What have we embraced? It would be good and right for them to repent of the sins of their forefathers. The deeds of the church speak a word about the Lord. And where we have not acted according to his will, we ought to repent. And where we are a part of a body that has previously not acted according to his will, we ought to repent. The sins of the church reflect upon the name of the Lord. I'll move on. Ezra recounts the glory of God and the history of his people. You can find similar accounts in Psalm 78, 104, and 105. I don't have time to go through all this in depth. But we see that Ezra starts with, you are the Lord, you alone. The beginning of this is a, a direction again. I've said this a few times. I'm not putting my eyes on myself. Our eyes are on you, Lord. There's a recounting of God's greatness in creation. All that he had done. Then it moves to the call of Abram who became Abraham. And the covenant that God made with him. Then we move to the people of Israel in slavery in Egypt. And they cried out to God. And he heard them. And he saved them. Then we see the law given through Moses. The providing of food to eat and water to drink when they cried out to him again, and he provided for them. In spite of God's faithfulness and provision, the people rebelled. They appointed leaders to bring them back into their slavery. They made idols to worship while Moses was atop Mount Sinai, receiving the law. Even then, the Lord continued to be faithful to them. They came into the promised land. They conquered kings and possessed the land, a land that was rich and full of all good things. They were no longer slaves, no longer wanderers, but they were inhabitants of a a blessed city, a fruitful land by God's mighty hand and power. Nevertheless, that's that word in verse uh, 26, is that? Nevertheless, all that God did for them. And then Ezra says... Nevertheless, they rebelled against the Lord. They cast his law behind their back. Did you notice the strong language of chapter 9 about what the people did to God? Cast his law behind their back. They were stiff necked, stubborn shouldered. It was, they were saying, Ezra was saying, like, we have continually disregarded the God who has been so good to us. Continually. That's our history. That's our nation's history. God's been good. We've disregarded him. They cast his law behind their back. They killed the prophets who were sent to preach the truth. They were disciplined. They cried out and he saved them again. Lather, rinse, repeat. Over, over, over. Again. What is Ezra getting at? This is who we are and this is who we have been. If you want to do a deeper dive into this passage later this week, I think it's really neat to look at all the you statements in this chapter. Look at the word you in this chapter and consider how they apply to Israel, but now even more to you. All that the Lord has done for us. I'm just going to give you a quick scan. Just a quick scan and you'll hear things like, you are, you made, you preserved, you chose, you brought, You saw, you heard, you led, you came down, you spoke, you made known, you told, you swore, you did not forsake, you gave your spirit, you sustained, you gave kingdoms and peoples, you multiplied their children, you brought them into the land, you subdued, you gave them to their enemies, you heard and saved You abandoned. You heard and delivered. You warned them. You did not make an end of them or forsake them. Over and over and over, Ezra is recounting all that he had done. And the blame for Israel's pain was on Israel alone. The Lord had been faithful. All the truths about what God did came from who he is. He is almighty. He is the creator. He is faithful, he is gracious, and he is merciful. He is abounding in steadfast love and he kept his word. But on the flip side of that, this confession acknowledges all that Israel had not been. Real confession, real confession in our lives involves owning the blame that we deserve. Here there is zero blame shifting, zero justifying. The people of Israel had been historically rebellious, and in the face of God's blessings, they had blasphemed. Blasphemed. In the face of God's goodness, they had worshiped idols. In the face of abundant provisions, they had repeatedly disobeyed him. Ezra said that they were slaves to that very day. Not necessarily that they were literally slaves at that point, but that they owned nothing completely. Nothing was their own anymore. The land that God had given them, it wasn't their land anymore. They had to pay kings and governors. Many of them lived in poverty. And Ezra acknowledged in verses 33 to 35 that this was their fault. He didn't say, why did you do this to us, God? He said, we did it to ourselves. When we confess our sins, a few things are vital. First, we recognize that all sin is ultimately against God. All sin is ultimately against God. When David was confronted uh, by the prophet Nathan, we read in Psalm 51, David says, against who? And who alone have I sinned? Against you and you alone, he says to the Lord, have I sinned? Is that true? Did he sin against anybody else? Yes, he sure did. He sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against Uriah. He sinned against Nathan. He sinned against his people. But what David is saying and what we need to recognize is that ultimately, ultimately, As the weight of our sin falls upon us, our sin is first and foremost against the Lord. The Lord is the aggrieved party. We have broken his laws. We have rebelled against his word, against his love. We have failed to understand his holiness. We have failed to reflect his character in our actions. The wickedness of sin is that it's a willful disregard of God's character and commands. Willful disregard. David needed to repent to others, but he recognized that ultimately his sin was against the Lord. As we confess second, we must actually own the blame that we deserve before God and before one another. We are often eager, whether it's before the Lord or before one another, To confess our sin in such a way that pushes the blame onto someone else. Sometimes even on God himself. Kind of like a, you made me do this. I'm sorry that it happened, but you made me do it. Is that a confession? I'm sorry that I blew up at you in rage, but it was really your fault that I did it. Is that a confession? I apologize if what I did hurt you. If what I did hurt you. Is that a confession? I did it because you... Is that a confession? No. We who understand the character of God can actually confess our sins entirely... And completely before him and before one another he knows them anyway we're not fooling him as we confess our sins to the Lord we acknowledge something so we confess our sins to the Lord and then to one another if they are against one another when we confess them to him look at what the the nation of Israel is in distress and as Ezra is at the same time confessing their sins he is also saying and you're the only one who can help us. You're the only one who can help us. Ezra says in verse 32 let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us. Ezra's saying we did it. It's before you. We're deserving of all that has come upon us. And can you help us? Will you help us? Is it good to know that when you realize the weight of your own sin and you bring it before the Lord and you realize the struggles I'm having are because of my own faults, my own sins, and the only one who I can go to to help me is the one who I've sinned against and that very one says, bring it to me. Bring it to me. And I will help you. And I will help you. The people of Israel had suffered the consequences of their own sins. And they needed the Lord's forgiveness and help. They were banking on the truth that was stated in verse 31. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not forsake them. For you are a gracious and merciful God. They came to the gracious and merciful God. And in this passage, as we move toward a close, they came with a resolution. They wanted the Lord to continue to see and hear. They wanted the Lord to lift their burdens off their backs, that they might be again a prosperous nation. Their only recourse at this point is to attempt to renew a covenant with the Lord. Which covenant? Which covenant are they trying to renew? Go ahead. Which covenant? I think I hear you whispering. It's hard to hear you up here. They're trying to renew, they're going to renew the Mosaic covenant. I don't want to step on next week's sermon, but Israel is going to again ratify this covenant with the hope that the Lord is going to give them another chance. They weren't entitled to another chance under that covenant, but they were coming hoping He would give them another chance. This covenant which has blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. This was really the only thing they could try to do. They couldn't go to God and say, hey, listen, That last covenant wasn't working out. We're going to make a different one with you. We're we're going to set up some. We can't fulfill that one, so how about you just bless us no matter how much sin we do? Would that work? They can't do that. These are his terms. And not to spoil anything here, I already did it, kind of, they're going to fail to keep it again. What do you bank on when you come before the Lord in confession? What do you hope in when you come before the Lord confessing? When you cry out to God, what is your hope that He's gonna hear and answer you? Only a couple generations before this, the Lord had promised in the book of Jeremiah, in the book of Ezekiel, He promised that He was gonna make a new covenant with His people. He promised to make a covenant that would not be broken. These people are going to make a resolution. They're not going to be able to keep it. Another spoiler for chapter 13. Nehemiah is going to leave for a little bit. He's going to come back and they're going to be speaking different languages in a couple years. That's how intermingled they're going to become with the gods around them. They weren't going to keep this covenant, but God promised a covenant that would be kept. Why would it be kept? Because he was going to keep it on both sides. He was going to do what man could not do. This covenant was ratified at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, who only a few hours before his death said to his disciples, of the cup at the Passover celebration, drink of it all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Animal sacrifices could not cleanse from sin. Endless rituals could not cleanse from sin. Promise after promise after promise to do better could not cleanse from sin. Do you know that? How many times in your life have you said to God, if you give me one more chance, I'll do better this time? If you give me one more chance, I won't fail this time. I'll I'll do it. I'll make it happen. Empty promises. Even ones I really felt within my own heart. But the promise of the new covenant is what man cannot do, what the law cannot produce, the Lord has done. Filling his people with the Holy Spirit. Cleansing them from all unrighteousness through the finished work of Jesus. Declaring us righteous strengthening us to be able to obey his commands, as we read in Ephesians 2.10, all of it of him. Because Jesus is fully God and fully man, because of his perfect earthly life, his sacrificial death, and his victorious resurrection, we are told in the book of Hebrews, I'm, gonna, I'm almost there, but this is just too good not to read, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 22, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better Forever. John says in 1 John 1, 1.9. If we confess our sins. He is faithful and just. To forgive us our sins. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do you know his forgiveness? And the strength that comes from him alone? He says stop relying on you and look to me. Lay your burdens upon Me. When I said earlier, lather, rinse, repeat about the history of Israel and their steady decline, though there were many highlights, the same is not true of the church. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The church is being built And strengthened. And the individuals within her are finding mercy and grace to help in time of need. All through the power and the forgiveness and the cleansing that comes through the Lord Jesus. If you are holding on today to unrepentant sin. Note a couple things as we close. Your sin is a huge deal. You have offended the God of the universe and stand to give an account to him. But also know this his mercy is huge for all who confess and seek his mercy through the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and he does not forsake his children. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus for your steadfast love. Thank you that you do not forsake your brothers and sisters, but you died for us. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that you do not forsake your children. Surely we are deserving of being forsaken. But we thank you that we can sing of your mercy and praise you for your grace. And by your grace, help us to walk out our faith and trust in you in a way that shows you off in this world, all of it by your Holy Spirit, all of it of you and you alone. To you be all
0: glory and honor, in Jesus' name, amen.